0: Do you want to win some money? I bet you do. Do you care about civil affairs? Yes, I know for sure, because you're listening to the show. Check out the call for issue papers. The new theme is campaigning in civil affairs. Some questions to answer include, how can CA contribute to campaigning? Beyond policy, what changes can better operationalize and integrate CA's role in campaigning? How would CA even measure progress in campaigning, and how would a full concept of the CA role in campaigning apply to conflict prevention, security cooperation, irregular or gray zone warfare? So put that thinking cap on, and submit your papers by Friday, fifteen September. For more details, visit civilaffairsassoc.org.
1: Welcome to the One CA Podcast. This is your host Jack Gaines. One CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting@gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. And a quick shout out to LC38Brand. They're offering 10% off for 1CA podcast fans. The promo code is 1CA10. LC38Brand has a little bit of everything for the international adventurer. So check out their website at lc38brand.com. I'll have the promo code and the address in the show notes.
0: This is John. You're doing a great job of the show. It's really awesome. Uh, we, We appreciate everything you've been putting out to the community. I've got a couple of requests. So some older episodes that I'd love for you to run back again if you've got time.
1: That, of course, is John McGillicott calling in to recommend some episodes that deserve a second listen. As you know, I use one week out of the month to bring in guest shows, but I think John has a great idea to also introduce shows from the archives that complement today's topics. So let's get started.
0: Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Command Sergeant Major Garrick Banfield. Hey, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I was uh, trying to look up your your name and the origin of both Garrick and uh, Banfield, and it looks like it's an old English name. It's, I think the, the finding, what I found for Garrick was uh, one who governs with a spear and mighty warrior. Do you know the background of your your first name or surname? Uh-huh. Well, sir, actually, uh, I was originally going
2: to be named Garrett. However, my mother's best friend who was pregnant at the same time had her son uh, a couple of weeks before I was born and she took Garrett. So Garrett was the next thing on the docket. Okay. So, uh, however, I, I do appreciate your research and background and I'm going to, I'm going to latch onto that and say it was, it was the spirit of the warrior that, that she saw in me.
0: Exactly. And that's awesome. Thank you again for being here. Really glad to have somebody from the 95th. We wanted to dig in for the listeners to um, what the 95th is, what your responsibilities as a Sergeant Major are, and um, talk a little bit more about the battalions that serve under the 95th. So I want to start by asking you, how long have you been with the 95th? sir? this time around, I've been with the
2: 95th for about a year. I, I assumed responsibility as the Brigade Command Sergeant Major last May. Um, however, I originally came to the in in 2005 after graduating the Civil Affairs Qualification Course.
0: How many uh, total years in service now since 1992, I guess, right?
2: Right. In uh, July 9th, I'll hit 27 years.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Now, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the 1st Sergeant and uh, maybe the Battalion Sergeant Major. What are the responsibilities for the Brigade Command Sergeant Major and your job in the 95th? So
2: my principal duties as a brigade command sergeant major are what they are outlined in the AR-600-20, which is to advise the commander on the performance, training, appearance, and conduct of the brigade. I'm also responsible for enforcement of Army policies and standards and administering the unit's non-commissioned officer development program. I'm the commander's wingman. I'm 100% committed to making sure my commander is successful and then taking the initiative and providing guidance and direction to the force to meet his intent. Colonel Burnett and I had the privilege of serving together for two years as a battalion command team in the 81st Civil Affairs Battalion, which meant we didn't need to spend a whole lot of time getting to know each other when we began our current roles together. In general, the CSM is very similar to the role of a first sergeant and the role of team sergeant. The role of non-commissioned officers at every echelon as being the agile member of the team that provides balance and fills in the gaps wherever it's needed to accomplish the day-to-day business of the organization, get the training complete, and really enforce and uphold the standards of the organization. This allows the commander to focus on providing direction to the organization, whether that be at the team, company, battalion, brigade, or higher levels.
0: Okay. Can you describe the relationship between the brigade and the battalion sergeant majors, and what kind of direction or guidance you may provide to them, or does that come from their battalions only?
2: So, really, the most critical relationship in those command teams is between the command sergeant major and that commander. So, okay. while I provide guidance and direction to the battalion command sergeant majors and provide them guidance on how to accomplish the commander's intent, really, they take their marching orders from their battalion commanders who in turn take their marching orders from the brigade commander. So the NCO support channel is almost an auxiliary channel that is there to support the chain of command. We have absolutely consistent and constant communication between the battalion command sergeant Major and myself. We talk on a daily basis. They keep me abreast of issues within their formations that I sort of coalesce and provide that feedback to my brigade commander.
0: Okay. What would you say is an elevator pitch or capabilities brief for the 95th overall?
2: Well, that's a great question. Several aspects to that. First is who we are. We're warriors, problem solvers, and regional cultural experts focused on the human component of the land domain in support of the geographic commanders, U.S. ambassadors, and at the end, the nation's priorities. But it's what we do as a brigade, and those Break down into three key tasks, civil reconnaissance, civil and unified action partner engagement, and human network analysis. So our brigade is refocused on, on developing our medal. And we currently have five brigade medal tasks. And those are establish civil, a civil affairs task force, conduct human network analysis, coordinate unconventional warfare, coordinate foreign internal defense, and coordinate foreign humanitarian systems operations. And the battalion medals are coalesced to support that brigade medal, which is passed further down into the guidance that battalions give to their companies for their training. So we're trying to get to a sustained readiness model where we're medal-based, evaluated and validated against performance metrics that support the medal, as opposed to solely mission-focused training for an upcoming mission.
0: Roger. Now, how many battalions are there currently under the 95th, and aren't they regionally aligned? Absolutely. So, in 2006,
2: the Quadrennial Defense Review outlined the growth of civil affairs across the Army and directed the growth of the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade. And then we went into growing the 96th into a brigade organization, and the brigade was actually activated in 2007 in a rapidly grew from one battalion into five regionally aligned battalions that we have today. And those are the 91st Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned with Africa, the 92nd Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned with Europe, the 96th Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned with the CENTCOM AOR, the 97th Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned with the Indo-PACOM Theater. And the 98th Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned with Southcom. So they're focused on South and Central
0: America. Would you say that the battalions will will flex, grow a little bit as needed if there's more focus on CENTCOM AOR as opposed to AFRICOM, for example? Or now uh, we're doing a lot of work in the Indo-PACOM area, so it's 95th, get more focus.
2: So we're very, very focused on getting our... Civil affairs officers and NCOs regionally aligned by the battalions. They that they that they've been trained and educated for their language, their regional analysis and studies into those battalions. Each battalion has six line companies in a battalion with five civil affairs teams, and really based on the global employment requirements, we're right sized right now for contingency plans and uh, persistent engagements throughout. Roger. However, some theaters require more teams than others. So while we do not like to break regional alignment, there's times that we have to, and we're going to, instead of piecemealing personnel, what we're looking at doing now is to deploy a company outside of their regionally aligned AOR to augment those theaters. Roger. An example would be in CENTCOM, the 96. Has a heavy requirement for civil military support elements within the CENTCOM AOR, and they've been going pretty hard and heavy for the past 16 years in the CENTCOM AOR. Right? right. We are now looking at rotating in companies from other battalions to pick up some of those missions in the CENTCOM AOR, specifically the combat-oriented missions that may be best suited compared to the civil military support element missions for somebody that is not specifically regionally aligned to the CETCOM-AOR.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. So I, I've seen the public information on the website for the 95th that says that it, it, it's been in the process of growing from uh, 2017, there were about 1,200 soldiers to more than 1,800. Did that happen? Did that growth take effect? Well, we did get a good bit of that growth. We've sort of
2: settled right now at about 1,700 uh, soldiers, civilians. Uh, within our Brigade. Uh, we're not projecting any growth in the near future. We seem to be about the right size to meet our current mission requirements.
0: Yeah, I know the overall civil affairs forces have gone up and down over the years, wax and wane, depending on the requirements from higher. Marine Corps was thinking about getting rid of a group. I think they may be adding, I know the, the 85th, right, Was that was downsized to a battalion that's now active duty at Fort Bragg supporting conventional units but also assisting in 95th, I believe. And now um, you guys are thinking about what the future is going to hold and what the requirements from the uh, national security plans essentially require of you to be going up or down. Right. And, you know, that that takes a while. Once there's a the demand signal, you can't just like turn on the spigot right away and, and say that someone is CA, NCA, or CA officer qualified.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, one of the... Tenants of special operations is is they can't be built in an emergency. So forecasting in the future, as you know, the the civil affairs pipeline on the active side is a year long, year and a half, two years for the guys going through the special operations combat medic course. So we really need to do do our best to forecast out for what the needs of the future
0: are so that we can have that force ready when we need them. So, CSM Banfield, some of my active duty CA friends have talked about how they deploy a little more often than the reserve CA forces do, but for shorter periods of time. So, could you talk with the audience about what that deployment to dwell ratio has been looking like these days? Sure.
2: Within 95th, we're currently just below a 1 to 2 deployment to dwell ratio, and we're confident that we'll be at a 1 to 2 deployment to dwell ratio by the end of this fiscal year. Within our brigade, our current deployments tend to be six months, and then there's many opportunities for shorter missions in between those six-month deployments. However, where our goal is a one-to-two to the ratio, I think that a better measure of the health of the force is actually the purse tempo or head-off pillow time. I say this because it doesn't matter to the spouses, the children, and families who are our service members whether our soldiers are deployed to a theater conducting operations on temporary duty within the United States or conducting training at a combat training center. Time away from home is time away from home. It's the cumulative effect of missing birthdays, anniversaries, and holidays that really wear down our force and families. So we're striving to meet that one to two deployments of all ratios within the ninety fifth, but our brothers and sisters in the eighty third Civil Affairs Battalion are at about a one to one dwell ratio, which speaks volume about the demand for civil affairs forces across the geographic combatant commands. And they're doing their best to get closer to a one to two, but the demand signal is so high for active duty civil affairs forces. That's a challenge.
0: Right. But but you do you need more NCOs, is that right?
2: Absolutely. So our NCO core is, is our NCO population is really the core of, of the MOS. And I believe we've got a vast pool of talent within the reserve forces are are incredible. And I'd love to figure out the way to get them a pathway onto active duty for those that are interested.
0: That's awesome. CSM Banfield, could you talk with the audience here about um, the greatest strengths that you've identified that you see from your perspective for the 95th CA Brigade?
2: Yes, sir. So without a doubt, the greatest strength of the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade is the professionalism and dedication of our soldiers, NCOs, officers, and civilians. I'm always amazed at the caliber of NCOs, officers, that we're getting from the Civil Affairs Pipeline and the ones that are currently and have been serving within our brigade. And it's not only our brigade across the entire branch, including the the 83rd SWIC and our reserve counterparts, the quality and strength of our corps is really the individual soldiers. Our brother and sisters across the active and reserve components have the same strengths and capabilities as as the soldiers within the 95th. So the soldiers, NCOs, officers of the 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion, first and third. Battalions of SWIC and the Reserve have a reputation of professionalism and expertise in their field that resonates throughout the Army and the joint force, and this is exactly what I see as our critical uh, capability that we
0: contribute to the army that 's awesome it 's good to hear. And I, would, I echo everything you just said i've seen the same thing in my years as well. So on the flip side, what would you say are some of the greatest weaknesses or areas in need of improvement?
2: as a branch. Where I see that we have the greatest opportunity to uh, to strengthen is in the way that we portray ourselves to the Army and how we interact and integrate with the Army and Joint partners. As civil affairs professionals, we have a responsibility to edu- educate ourselves on Army and Joint doctrine and figure out how we fit in and how we can communicate best and influence the Army and Joint environment to. Uh, focus on the civil aspects within the range of military operations. A lot of that comes down to educating ourselves and understanding the vernacular and lexicon used by the Army and Joint Force. When we walk into that talk and talk to the commander and provide advice, how he's conducting operations in respect to the civil domain and what he needs to consider for civil aspects, in his operations. We're able to communicate, and that's what's going to build the credibility of our Corps within the Army and Joint Force.
0: Yeah, good point. So one of those documents, I guess, um, you talk about doctrine is the latest FM 3-57. Would you say that people should read that, or are there other documents that people should look at, maybe uh, Joint Sim or some other things you've been tracking?
2: So absolutely, but also on the Army publication website is a, a slew of Army training publications that focus on civil affairs and civil affairs operations. And pulling those down and reading those and getting to know the vernacular in terms of Army doctrine and how the Army sees civil affairs is going to make our uh, force stronger and better able to interact with our Army units. There's also a civil affairs white paper out that's looking at civil affairs capabilities and out to 2025 and what we're going to need to do as a force to meet the future
0: operating environment. Great points. So I know there's a wide range of engagements and partners with whom 95th soldiers work. Could you provide some examples of those? Sure.
2: The civil affairs professionals from the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade, the 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion, and our reserve brothers and sisters Worked with an incredibly wide range of partners that span from military members across the U.S. services, U.S. interagency partners, foreign military counterparts, and then indigenous populations and institutions. The ability of our civil affairs professionals to engage with this multitude of partners is our greatest strength and contribution. Civil affairs forces are at the tip of the spear countering mind actors that are wielding influence in our partner nations, in many cases around the world, and within several combatant commands. Civil affairs forces are the execution arm of American diplomatic efforts. In several theaters, civil affairs forces are building resiliency and resistance to our peer competitors. They're conducting civil reconnaissance and civil engagement to burn back atmospheres and build a common understanding of the operating environment and future contested areas. And in short, civil affairs are the economy of force for the department of defense in exerting influence around the world.
1: Yeah,
0: they absolutely are. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of punch packed into um, a civil affairs NCO officer who's gone through the qualification process, speaks a lot of the language, understands how to interact with people in, in ways that, uh, the typical soldier just hasn't been trained, and they have uh, additional education and engagements to be able to move around the battlefield in ways that other soldiers simply do not. And I had the uh, pleasure of going through the CA qualification in the last couple stages on Operation Celeste-Tiller with active duty CA soldiers on my team. We had uh, mostly NCOs, a couple other officers. Uh, I thought it was a great experience, and we had a great opportunity to learn a lot about active duty and reserve perspectives from both sides do you know if there are any other opportunities for active duty and reserve CA forces to, to train or deploy together, or is there a firewall wall between the two?
2: Sir, sure, I see no firewalls. In fact, the active duty and reserve component civil affairs forces are blood relatives. While each unit has their specific area of strength, we need to seek every opportunity to work together and to build relationships and capitalize from each other's strengths. In fact, 95th recently partnered with the 304th Civil Affairs Brigade out of Pennsylvania for a training exercise across three western states where one of our battalions receives exceptional mentorship in the areas of support to civil administration, public safety, and public works and utilities. Another example of the 95th partnering with reserve counterparts is an upcoming validation exercise that we're going to be running later this year in which we're coordinating with role-player and observer trainer support from the 352nd Civil Affairs Command out of Maryland and the 412th Civil Affairs Battalion out of Ohio. The 95th is committed to improving our coordination, collaboration, and working relationships with our reserve brothers and sisters. While missions and capabilities vary by unit and component, I believe that the more we work together, the better we'll be integrated. The 95th Civil Affairs Brigade and the 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion have the luxury of being co-located on Fort Bragg, and we have a very, very close working relationship. And while there are differences in missions, mission essential tasks between the capabilities and capabilities between the units, the quality of soldiers equal. The 95th and the 83rd have a very close uh, working relationship, including cross-pollination of civil affairs soldiers between units. The only real difference between the unit is who our end customers are. The 95th supports theater special operations commands, and the 83rd supports United States Army Forces Command. An example of the minute differentiation of capabilities is that the 95th is chartered with the unique mission of coordinating unconventional warfare whereas the 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion has the responsibility of maintaining a company ready to execute the Global Response Force mission within 18 hours. While these are missions that either unit could conduct with adequate lead time, the specificity of of mission requirements allows them to focus on training and resources and being prepared to execute those missions at a moment's notice. And then there's our reserve counterparts, who are charged with providing functional specialists from the 16th functional areas. There's no way that the active component civil affairs units could sustain unit readiness while also sustaining expertise in these functional areas. So I see the Civil Affairs Corps as a family of professionals united in achieving national interests through a multitude of capabilities that are applied across the entire range of military operations.
0: I hope that we continue to train together. Deployments, you know, the missions are going to be different, but We'll, we'll run across each other for sure uh, downrange and in other countries as we prepare to do these missions and hand off to each other. From what I've seen at the junior level, at the tactical level, is if, as long as we have the points of contact, we know who each other, who they are. You know, if a reserve unit, for example, is deploying somewhere, you've got a battalion, obviously, that monitors that country and that AOR constantly. And uh, for the reserve side, we're not doing that all the time at least sharing information and in country studies and, and the latest running estimate before you go into the country would be a huge opportunity to get a reserve unit spun up on what's happening. Um, and certainly on the high side, you have people who are qualified to, to engage and talk that way as well. Absolutely. So I wanted to finish this conversation with a couple of questions. Um, for example, if you came across an infantry sergeant who is considering whether to apply to SOF, uh, Special Operations Forces, then what would your pitch be to look at civil affairs?
2: Great question, sir. I routinely engage with soldiers from a variety of career fields who are considering a future in Special Operations Forces. So my pitch to them focuses primarily on the level of responsibility that they'll be entrusted with on a small team, the influence that they'll wield on behalf of the nation, and the great training that they'll receive, and especially the adventure of what they'll encounter as an on in civil affairs. I don't think there's a... Better job in the Army uh, than being an NCO on a civil affairs team. There's nowhere else in the Army that a staff sergeant or sergeant first class has a strategic effect on a region or theater that they do on a civil affairs team. Our NCOs are routinely entrusted and engaged directly with U.S. country teams and embassies and indigenous partners and institutions around the world on behalf of theater commanders. The language skills and cultural expertise that they gain through the training pipeline is exceptional. And they'll always be confronted with and expected to solve complex problems with, with little more than the knowledge of the nation's interests and an understanding of the strategic intent. It's a great job, and what we're really looking for are problem solvers. Once they've mastered the trade at the tactical level for a minimum of two years, they'll be afforded the opportunity to return to Army formations at echelons between battalion or corps level, to advise commanders on how those commanders can engage the human component of the land domain. This is an opportunity to shape the way our Army sees a modern battlefield and fights wars. Also, the opportunities for training and education within civil affairs are unparalleled anywhere within the Army. All active duty civil affairs soldiers are required to be airborne and language qualified. Our civil affairs forces have have access to the Army's best advanced leadership and training courses. Just a few examples are the Special Operations Combat Medic course, SEER school, Ranger school, Sapper school, Pathfinder, Information Operations courses, and a wide variety of courses down at the Joint Special Operations University. We routinely send our NCOs through fully funded master degree programs and employ them at the strategic level. And the opportunities within the civil affairs branch are limitless. In short, our NCOs are and officers are trusted, respected, and accomplished more than any other MOS within the Army. On the reserve side, I see the citizen soldier nature of our reserve force as one of the greatest strengths when it comes to having a real-world experience in the five functional specialty areas, which are security, justice, and reconciliation humanitarian assistance and social well-being, governance and participation, and economic stabilization and infrastructure. The fact that there are civil affairs NCOs and officers that do these functions daily in their civilian lives as their full-time profession gives a breadth and depth of experience that the active component could never replicate. I also see a lot of opportunity for the active duty force and reserve force to cross-pollinate I'd love to see a pathway for Civil Affairs Reserve and AGR soldiers to attend the Civil Affairs Assessment and Selection and then serve within the active component, whether it be for a few years or the rest of their career. Similarly, we have several NCOs and officers within the active force that joined the Army with the intent of serving their country in uniform for a few years and then will return to civilian life. I see this as an opportunity to bring those Civil Affairs experts from the active component into the reserve force to further strengthen the relationship between the two.
0: That's awesome. My final question for you is, for some of the team sergeants, this may be the first time they've been in this role and had to manage a small team of fellow soldiers. What are some tips that you would share with those uh, first-time team sergeants?
2: Well, the best tip I can give to team sergeants or NCOs at any level is to remain true to the values and fundamental ethics and discipline expected of all Army leaders break down into a few simple rules. Number one, do the right thing, even when no one's looking. Civil affairs teams will inevitably find themselves operating alone and unafraid with little to no immediate supervision. I expect leaders to live by and enforce standards. This starts with the small things. Military courtesies, appearance, PT tests, and quality of training that they're doing at home station. But if you're allowing these standards to be ignored and garrison and home station environment you're building bad habits within your team these bad habits will inevitably continue and grow downrange. second so i'd say st- stay morally straight regardless of the situation in which you find yourself we need our leaders being the moral compass for their teammates that will keep them on the right azimuth that's critical at times In the past, there have been ethical and moral missteps and miscalculations that have resulted in the loss of prestige to our nation. Those teams that are foreign-serving in foreign countries are a reflection and ambassador of the United States, and that's a serious and heavy responsibility that they need to live up to. We send our teams into situations of high political risk, and they're entrusted to make the right decisions. As I frequently say, if you wouldn't do it, Or say it in front of a general officer, you probably ought to rethink what you're doing. Another good rule is do the routine things routinely well. A lot of what what it is to be a team sergeant is the same as being a leader anywhere else in the Army. If you master the very basics, I'm talking about property accountability, administrative actions, counseling, individual and small unit training, general readiness for your team, etc. You're going to have a strong foundation to build on. Empower subordinates and teach others to do your job. If you find that the team, company, battalion, brigade, etc. can't function without you, that's a sign you need to focus on developing your subordinates. I've always had the luck of being surrounded by folks that are far more talented than I am, but I invest heavily in empowering leaders down to the lowest level possible to solve problems and exercise discipline Initiative. What that is not, is passing your workload problems and blame onto others and then taking credit for the wins. What it is is ensuring your subordinates understand the intent, the left and right limits, and allowing them to move out to the objective. It also means that you're ready to provide supporting fires when they need them and stand behind them when honest mistakes are made. It's our job as leaders to dust them off and get them back on the horse again. And that leads to my last point. Build trust. To be a great team, we must trust each other. Trust is a two-way street. In order to earn the trust of others, you have to not only be trustworthy and consistent in your words and deeds, you also need to demonstrate your trust in others. You need to take every opportunity to exercise trust amongst your teammates. We've all heard the old adage of trust but verify, and some folks see that the verification part is a lack of trust. But I actually see that as, as a critical piece of building trust. It's an opportunity to reinforce trust
0: between echelons. Well, that's some great advice. Brigade Command Sergeant Major Garrick Vanfield, the Brigade CSM of the 95th CA Brigade, the mighty warrior, as we've learned early on this podcast. Thank you very okay. much for being on the 1CA Podcast. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your time, sir. It's been an honor.
1: Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And thank you again to LC38 Brand for offering 10% off to our listeners. We've been nominated for the People's Choice Awards, and this is a little extra treat for those who made it happen. Again, the code is 1CA10 and the site is LC38Brand. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes of 1CA Podcast.